From WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University, I'm Byron Williams, and this is The Public Morality. Today, on The Public Morality, I speak with Thomas Mills, publisher of Politics North Carolina, a go-to online publication about politics in the Tar Heel State. That's coming up on The Public Morality. Welcome to the public morality. One of the defining features in the 21st century is the manner we get information. We tend to gravitate toward the thinking that corresponds with previously held beliefs. But my guest, Thomas Mills, writes a daily blog called Politics North Carolina that political insiders seek in order to get a handle on North Carolina politics. In 2014 alone, the blog, or Mr. Mills specifically, was cited more than 60 times by national media during that year's election cycle, helping to shape the media's perception of North Carolina politics. Thomas Mills, welcome to The Public Morality. Thank you so much, Byron. Good to be here. Uh-huh. You know, in a relatively short period of time, you know, politics North Carolina has become one of the most influential news sources statewide. My words, not yours. Um, Spend a Thank moment, you, Baron. Yes, but spend a moment, if you will, uh, discussing your rise and how, how did it come to be. Well, I spent about 25 years working in, on political campaigns. And um, I, I worked all over the country, but I, I worked especially here in North Carolina. Um, my, my family was fairly political growing up. My, my father was a, a Superior Court judge down in Anson County, um, and I've lived around the state. I got... I lived in uh, Shelby for a little while. I, I lived in, grew up in Wadesboro, North Carolina. Now I live in Carborough, North Carolina. But I've got a brother in Asheville. I've got uh, relatives down on the coast. So I, I got a pretty. I think I have a pretty complete understanding of North Carolina. You know, I've, I've seen it from a lot of different perspectives, and you know, I'm, I'm, I've got a political worldview. So. When I started writing about politics, I think I brought a voice that, that really wasn't in the, in the dialogue in that I understood politics from the point of view of a political strategist. I also came with, a, with both a, a, a deep love for this state and an understanding of, I think, the, the way it's changed over my lifetime. And... Uh, I think that that captured a lot of attention, um, you know, and and I was able to. I tried not to do politics. I still do some. I still I still consult to a few folks. But I tried not to do it for a few years, and just write about it and just make commentary. And and I think that caught uh, caught the attention of a lot of national publications. And um, 
that's that's really how I got here. I think I pre- presented a, a, a point of view that was not there, and I also think it came at the right time in that Republicans had just taken full control of the legislature and the governor's mansion. And I don't think Democrats knew how to respond to that very well. And I think I, I, I created a voice that was absent at that particular time. You know, one of the things that, 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 that strikes me that in, in most of our politics, whether it's local, state, or federal, we're more titillated by emotional rants and sort of that judicious discourse. So even you may have had that the right pitch. I mean, how did you carve out space? Because most of us want an answer, and we want to be told that not only we're right, but the guy we oppose is awful. So how did you carve <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I mean, part of I think I think part of that is uh, having been in the political arena, and and as, as a strategist, and part of what I I feel like my job as a political strategist is to to understand not just the other side's point of view but to understand why that point of view is attractive to certain people in, in our society. And what, if, if you spend a lot of time, I spend a whole lot of time reading conservative publications, and probably more time reading conservative stuff than I do uh, progressive stuff. But, you know, what you start to realize is they, didn't, they don't come to their position in a vacuum. They come there because of, of some sort of experience or background, and you know every now and then they're right. You know what's the old saying? Even every now and then, even a, the blind squirrel finds a nut. Yeah. But uh, you know, so so when you realize that they most people come to their political decisions based on some sort of rational analysis of their own situation, it's really hard to sit there and demonize everybody. I mean, look, I'm no, I'm not naive either. I mean, I think there are some there, some people come to those decisions for really bad, bad reasons, and that we need to push back. But I also think that there are people that come to these these conclusions based on very rational decisions, and we need to at least understand their point of view, and if not, embrace their solution, recognize their problem. Mm-hmm. You know, so with, with those two polarities, uh, uh, I, I'll call one one segment of your last answer the really cynical side, and the other side would be the, you know the rational. They come to it with you know uh, legitimately how they come to their conclusions. I, I'm going to read from one of your bloggers, Alexander Jones, yeah, and I'm going to have you respond to it. He writes, "Quote: Too many Republicans, especially in the South, thirst to restore." An intolerant pass. Uh, now, I would imagine uh, uh, that many would conclude that that sounds more like partisan red meat than that judicious space that you have successfully carved out. How do you see that? Um, you know, I, that, let me first say I have a couple of guest bloggers, and I pretty much give them full reign to, to write what they want to write. I also, uh, for a long time, uh, I had a Republican named John Wynn who writes for me, and John still weighs in every now and then, but John's actually at Wake Forest Law School, so um, he's not been writing as much in the last little bit. But, you know, I think Alex 
Alex has a tendency to, to be more towards kind of the red meat side of things. Um, and, you know, there, there's, there's, a, there's a point to where Alex, Alex is coming from. Um, what, where I think the, the problem is is that, it, that it's not that they want to go back to in, an intolerant past. It's, it's that, that they, they have, too many people have rose-colored glasses. You know, the 50s was great if you were uh, white, you know, working class, uh, working in a, in a mill, you, you had, and man, and a man, you know, you had a bright future ahead of you. You, you, could, you could go to work, you could get out of college, you could go to work, you could make a decent living and everything else. If you were African American in the South or you were a woman, th those opportunities were far more limited. So that's not an appealing uh, uh, place to go. And I don't necessarily, you know, I think I think we've seen conservatives do this over the years. I, you know, I think more there's probably more of them that think somehow we get back to the to the good old '90s, um, which were, you know, engineered largely by a Democratic president. Uh, so I don't think they they consciously think that I want to go back to a bad place. Um, or a place that's bad for other people. I want to go back to what I think of as, as, a, as a better time for me. And uh, sometimes that, that place is not a better, better place for other folks. Well, staying with that, I would imagine, given your, your, your last answer, that, that uh, the changing demographics that, that are appearing not just in North Carolina but all over the country have to factor in to your last answer. Yeah, yeah, I, I mean, we're, uh, I mean, I think there's a lot of resentment. I was actually just in a conversation earlier today about some of this. You know, it's, uh, th there's a perception, particularly in areas where, in North Carolina, about half the counties are losing population. Uh, they got hit very, very hard by trade agreements. And what you saw is companies leaving North Carolina and setting up shop down in Mexico, some in China, south of the border. And at almost at the same time, you saw an influx of uh, mainly Hispanic immigrants throughout rural North Carolina, and in the cities too, but in, in rural areas. But so at the same time you're watching jobs leave, you're seeing these new folks come in, and it does create a level of resentment. And... Uh, they may not have caused the jobs to go, but if you're somebody who's on the short end of a job and you're seeing folks come in that, that really do in some ways lower, lower some of the wages, that, it's, uh, that it, it's hard not to stoke some resentment among, among the folks who have not done well in the global economy. Talk, talk to me, if you would, about some of the structural changes um that the Republican Party, uh, Republican majority rather, in the legislature have um, put in place that have sort of made governing challenging. How about, how, how about if I say it that way? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, you know, I think, you know, this is where my partisanship comes in. I think what these guys have done has been bad for North Carolina on so many different fronts. And 
some of the structural changes, have, it's just been major uh, political overreach. You know, we, we traditionally, I mean, North Carolina uh, local governments are actually uh, given authority by state government. But traditionally, they, they kind of, they, they basically, we've allowed them a, a fair amount of self, self-rule. Republicans read that and went, huh, so we can go in here and we can change whatever we want. So they've gone in and they've made nonpartisan races partisan. They've redistricted local municipalities uh, without any consideration for what the municipalities wanted, all in an attempt to make it more partisan. You know, they've changed the way we elect people. They've changed the rules for voting, all in an attempt to make it more favorable for Republicans and at the expense of voters who uh, are traditionally Democratic-leaning, mainly African-Americans and younger voters. And, you know, they, they bring no historical perspective to the game. And it's just, it's... It's maddening to watch. You know, if, if you're coming, I mean, 50, a <laughs> little over 50 years ago, most African Americans in North Carolina couldn't even vote. And it took the Voting Rights Act of uh, 1965 to really open up the, 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 the system to, to African Americans voting in the South. And now they're going to turn around and try to restrict access to the polls again. You know that's that is so that's so offensive and so historically tone deaf, and they can't understand why people would take offense at it. So that, you know, well, let me just stop. Let me just jump in there because I think I think that is an interesting point you just raised because the reflexive response to that behavior would obviously be, given the history of the Voting Rights Act, would be that this is, these are racist politics. But I guess from your perspective, and I'm not trying to whitewash what they're doing, but from your perspective as a political observer, would they do this if it was not a successful political formula? No. I mean, I think, I think I don't know how big of an impact the voter suppression has had yet, but the potential for it is huge. And, and I think they, they, they believe it's going to benefit them. And uh, they wouldn't do it if they didn't believe it was going to benefit them. I mean, look, you know something? We never, ever heard Republicans complaining about voter fraud until we elected a black guy president. You know, and in their minds, therein is the voter fraud because <laughs> they, don't, they can't believe there are that many people that would vote for a black guy. <laughs> you know, I mean, it must be fraud. <laughs> you know, okay. it's, uh, but anyhow, that's that's you know that it, it's it's a it's a policy that that taps into the ugliest strain of of American politics. I mean, the ugliest the the regressionist forces sentiments um, and exploits them, and it's just it's really it's I, I find it really offensive. Well, I, I guess the contrarian perspective would be, or, or, or just to ask you rather to push back, why have they not paid a price for for what to to use a legal term would reasonable people would conclude are are, are egregious policies? Well, 
Um, I think there, there are a lot of different reasons. Uh, there, there's no one reason they haven't paid a political price. Um, I would argue that in some ways, I think nationally we're undergoing a, a, a major realignment and shift in our politics. And uh, I don't know where it's going right now, but the, 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 the people who are voting um, tend to be the angriest people right now. And, uh, you know, and they're, and, and they're ready to burn it down, and Democrats aren't offering anybody to burn down the system. Republicans are. So, so they're, they're getting rewarded by the people who vote. Um, you know, the other thing is, is I think Democrats, for our, that side, I think we've done a lousy job of offering people a good reason to go vote. I mean, I, my, my analysis, a little bit of what happened with Donald Trump in North Carolina is, and, and look, this, you know, I'm not saying this would have completely changed the election, but we'd ever offered working class voters a real reason to go to the polls. And what you saw happen is a lot of the white working class, even people who voted for Obama in 12 and 8, went to the polls and voted for Donald Trump. We saw a drop among African-American men, a significant drop among African-American men turnout. And my argument is is Democratic Party failed to give them a reason to go to the polls. You know, there's no, there was almost no substantial economic message that was getting through. Um, there was no pushback to what the Republicans were offering. And so uh, they stayed home. And, and there's not enough votes among those African-American men to flip their electorate. But maybe there had been if you had given working-class people some expectation and hope you peel off some of those Trump voters, you increase the African-American men turnout, maybe, maybe things would have turned out a little bit different in North Carolina. The other thing is obviously gerrymandering. I mean, these guys have been masters at it. You know, they like to say that Democrats did it, Democrats did it. You know, Democrats did do some of it, but never to the extent that Republicans have. I mean, I was around the redistricting in 2000, after the 2000 election, and uh, it was it was. Uh, it was elected officials and staff who drew the districts. These guys brought a, a man in whose whole job, his only job, is to go draw districts around the country favorable to Republicans. And he's got powerful, powerful technology to do it that wasn't even available 25 years ago. So, you know, or 15 years ago. So they they've taken gerrymandering and turned it into an art form and it it disenfranchises people it makes it very difficult for uh democrats to win in districts and then there is there is some truth to the fact that democrats you know as i was saying half the county half the state is losing population the other counties that are gaining population are mainly those around urban areas along the i-85 corridor and around Asheville, and a little bit of down around wilmington and, uh, you know, and, and Democrats do pretty well in those areas. But, uh, and what happens is, is it's hard to draw districts. Or, or let me rephrase that. It makes it easier to draw districts that, that uh, are favorable to Republicans um, than, than it is when, when your base is concentrated in areas. I mean, I watched, there were areas in North Carolina where Donald Trump won 80-20. 
<laughs> you know, I mean, those are shocking numbers. And uh, to me, that's pretty disturbing. You know, two, two things come to mind. I mean, one, when you look at the, uh, the results from 2016, give or take, a few, you know, 20,000 votes one way or the other, Donald Trump's numbers were pretty much mirrored Richard Burr's numbers, which pretty much mirrored, you know, everybody down ballot. And it was the same on the, on the Democratic. Well, there were a couple exceptions, obviously, the governor's race, uh, uh, along with the uh, 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 labor secretary. You have a couple exceptions. But those numbers statewide were pretty much the same. So there wasn't a lot of cross-balling. Cross People just were going straight Republican, straight Democratic ticket. And is that what North Carolina has become, or is there any hope that that might change? Um, you know, I, I mean, I, I think the electorate's in flux right now. And, uh, you know, I don't, I don't know where we are. I mean, uh, folks voted for Obama in 2008. They voted for Democrats in 2006. You know, they've been voting Republican pretty much since then. But I still think there's probably five to ten percent of the electorate out there that that's that's up for grabs, and then a state where the decisions are made by a point or two, that's enough to that's enough to flip an election one way or the other. Um, you know, usually though, you see some level of that uh, where they vote the presidential race as a driver. But the fact that Cooper won shows that people were splitting tickets up. You know. They, they uh, Cooper and Josh Stein won, um, and they, the Republicans and a lot of folks argue, and it's, there's probably a point to it that HB two was the what killed McCory and and uh, the AG candidate. Uh, I can't remember his name. Republican AG candidate, and I, I think that may be true, but that's also uh, that's also a, a, a symptom of people rejecting kind of the, the socially conservative politics. They, you know, I think Donald Trump's whole message was a lot of it was about jobs and, you know, he was going to bring the companies back. He was going to bring coal back. He was going to read it. He was, it was an economic thing. It was a populist economic message that, that Democrats didn't really counter with too well. If you're just joining us, I'm speaking with Thomas Mills, the founder and publisher of Politics North Carolina. Um, what, I mean, since you've spent so much time on North Carolina politics, specifically, not primarily, but, 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 but specifically at the, at the state level, um, what makes North Carolina politics so interesting from an observer's perspective? Well, I think a lot of it is the fact that we are probably one of the most closely divided states in the nation and um and and will be for a long time and so uh that that draws political out people from outside of north carolina to look at north carolina but there's a lot of you know there are a lot of underlying factors that we have and we're 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 a very good microcosm of the rest of the country and you know we've seen Industries devastated by uh, trade deals. We lost the furniture industry. We lost the textile industry mostly, um, and, and yet we've also benefited tremendously uh, in, in the high tech industry, you know, and, and finance. Um, so, 
you know, at at a at a time where um, these these te- technologies really becoming dominant, you know, we we we've got one of, some of the fastest growing places in the country. I think Raleigh's uh, Wake County is one of the fastest growing uh, counties in the nation, and and uh, um, Charlotte's not far behind. So. You know, we we're seeing we're seeing the benefits of this economy, and we're seeing the the, the detriments of this economy. Um, and and not only that, we're a state everybody loves. We got mountains, we got Piedmont, we got coast. Who doesn't want to live here? And we got a mild climate. So, um, well, well, mild is relative, depending where you're from. I, I I remember I've been here, I've been I've lived here in, uh, in Winston Salem three years now, but it was about two weeks ago. Where I actually found the humidity was like, okay, this is a little much. This is a little much. <laughs> well, that that I gotta say that that was pretty strange. That walking outside in October and it it, it felt like you just walked into some sort of tropical wind. Right. Yeah. Okay. So you, so you know what I'm talking about. Well, well I know exactly well, what you're talking so about. So with that yeah. one exception, who I agree with you 100. percent Who wouldn't want to live here? Um, talk to me again from 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 the perspective of being a political observer. Um, the impact on the state of Republicans enjoying in the legislature a, a, a veto-proof majority, how has that impacted the politics of the state? You know, it's made them, it's made them far more extreme than they should have been. And, uh, I mean, they, they overturned McCrory's vetoes, they overturned all of, of Roy Cooper's vetoes, so there's no real check on the legislature. And you know, a lot of their policies have certainly harmed our reputation. You know, HB2 uh, got pushed through, and had they not had veto-proof majorities, I don't know if that would have ever happened. Um, if McCrory thought he could have sustained a veto, he may have vetoed that bill, um, but he couldn't. So uh, you had that, you know, but they did crazy stuff. I mean, it really, you go back and read national publications it looked like North Carolina was coming off the rails in 2013. You had every every major conservative uh, uh, issue was coming up in North Carolina. They were restricting access to abortion. <laughs> Look, some guy some guy in 2013 introduced a bill that would create a state religion, you know, and, and it didn't it didn't get anywhere. But that was the mentality. It was like we're we're so in charge that you know we can do whatever we want, and that's the mentality that's hurt us. I mean, I think the, some there, there there have been policies that have been bad, like like I said, like I talked about where they where they've really come in and overridden local control and and really have they look like authoritarians, but they know that they can they can do whatever they want, and there's no pushback to it. And it's really it's damaged our reputation. I mean, I, I think North Carolina would be in the in the running for this Amazon uh, headquarters. But I gotta say, I mean, I read it, and and it, we're hopeful, and places say we look pretty good. But the problem is, is Amazon's going to look at it, and they're going to see this legislature, and they're just not going to. They're, they're going the exact opposite of where the legislature is. I mean, Amazon's embraced. We shut down an Amazon-owned wind farm already, you know. So Amazon's embraced renewable energy. Our legislature's pr- pushing back, you know. Amazon's embraced 
in, in being inclusive. Our legislature ha has made clear that uh, they don't mind a certain amount of, of uh, discrimination, uh, particularly uh, with LGBT community. And, you know, those are just contrary to the values of Amazon. You know, Amazon, one of their, their requirements is uh, a, a strong public transportation system. Our legislature has fought any sort of public transportation system for the most part. And it, they, but, you know, everything that these companies like Amazon want, they're against. And that's a problem. And it gets back to a little bit about what Alex Jones was saying. I think he's wrong in his language a little bit. But, you know, they're really wanting to go back to days of, you know, where, where they want to bring back industries that aren't coming back, you know, and it's, and, uh, they want to ignore the changing, uh, demographics. I mean, we're, we're, we're among one of the fastest growing countries, uh, states in the nation. I'm, I don't know what exactly public transportation looks like in a state like this, but I know it, we better be looking, coming up with some sort of vision for how we're going to move people around and across the state. Um, or we're, we're going to stop being one of the fastest growing places in the nation. Well, since, since you, you mentioned Alex Jones, is only so in, in the spirit of complete fairness, I'm now going to um, quote you and, and, okay. ha and have you co have you comment on it. So, uh -oh. so, so, so that, that way <laughs> we won't think we're just beating up on Alex. So now we're going right. to we're just going to beat up on you. Uh, okay. All right. You wrote, um, quote, they're passing bills to rig judicial system now because they may not be able to in the future. They're redrawing judicial districts to make them more favorable to Republicans. They're making nonpartisan races partisan, which you touched on earlier. Uh, they're even scrapping judicial primaries to make next year's ballot long and confusing, hoping to give GOP candidates an advantage. That's a lot, but I'm going to ask you to say more okay. about what you just said. I'll unpack pack it in different parts. Okay. Part of, part of what they were doing is um, there's probably some justification for redoing some of the judicial districts because for the most part these things were – the judicial system was set up in 1972 and the state's a dramatically different place. The problem is, is that last time we redid our judicial system, and restructured it. It was over about a two-year period, was a study period, and we did it in the interest of good, good government. These guys are redrawing the districts purely to get partisan advantage. They want to elect more Republican judges, and that's not the point of uh, that's not the point of of our judiciary. It's, our judiciary's job is to be fair and impartial, and so they're running against counter to the whole. Um, the whole purpose of, of, of the judiciary and trying to make it hyper-partisan. What they're doing with, and, and that's really what they're doing with the, this, this judicial primary, the, the pro Republicans have an issue in statewide elections. There's a good chance in a Republican primary they would, they would, they would nominate judicial candidates who were probably unelectable in a primary. But if they throw everybody in on one big ballot, they got a better chance of coming out with some moderate Republican, relatively moderate Republican judges, um, or, or any Republican judges, really, than if they have to go straight head-to-head -head with, with Democrats, uh, particularly in a year like 2018, where 
it's shaping up right now to be a good year for Democrats. And that's not what they want to see. They, they're trying to give Republicans as much advantage as possible. It gets back to that this problem that I have with them in that they're trying to politicize everything. They're trying to make the world more political, not less political. And instead of trying to bring North Carolina together, they're doing everything they can to keep it divided because, in their view, a more divided state is more politically beneficial to them. Now, now you, you said that 2018 uh, is shaping up, and, that, and the key words are shaping up, uh, to be a good year uh, for Democrats. Uh, and I know we talked mostly about the about the state races, but uh, the Senate, but but in the but in the House of Representatives, when I look at you know the the North Carolina delegation, every seat, whether it's a Republican seat, and 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 those and those incumbents have voted uh, very highly with President Trump, or a Democratic seat when they've voted uh, largely against President Trump, all those seats are safe. So I, I, I guess, is there any chance of any of this stuff turning when incumbency, even more so than party, are sort of entrenched in, in, in these safe seats? Not just North Carolina, but across the country. Right. And, you know, um, I think there, there are a handful of districts in North Carolina that, that could be competitive, congressional districts that could be competitive next year. And where... 2018 in North Carolina is what they call blue moon election. We don't have anything at the top of the ticket, any any high profile statewide uh, campaigns. We don't have a U.S. Senate race. We don't have a governor's race or anything. So the drivers are uh, these congressional campaigns, which which have never been um, real exciting to most people. So. And these blue moon elections, which we have every 12 years, turn out plummets. I think in uh, in 2006, it was 37% turnout in the general election. And in 1994, it was like 38 or 39%. Those are the last two. And so what, what the people that come out are the most motivated voters. And, uh, you know, you get some of these districts where dissatisfaction with Trump is high, particularly uh, there's a there's a district district two that's largely suburban uh, Wake County, Raleigh, and and really surrounding counties, and you, you you've got a lot of people who probably don't buy into a whole lot of the Trump phenomena, and and the same thing in District Nine and maybe District Eight and District Thirteen, uh, Nine and Eight are outskirts of Charlotte. The uh, or, or nine actually is a big portion of Charlotte, and then thirteen is kind of Greensboro. You know, you got a lot of suburban voters who who may not be buying what the Republicans are selling. And when you have a, a, a motivated electorate, and Democrats have a motivated electorate right now, um, you can you can overcome a lot of uh, adversity. You know, and and I was just reading something that said the, the number of Democratic congressional candidates across the country who have raised more than $100,000 uh, is shocked Republicans. It's, it's way more than the number of Republicans in 2009 who, uh, who would raise that. In fact, they're outraising the incumbents. And 
you know, it's shaping up to be a, a year that, that could really pull people over the top. And, and, and just historically, the first midterm after the election of a new president is bad for the party in the White House. So there's just a whole lot of factors coming together that could make some of these relatively safe Republican seats more, far more competitive than they look on the surface. I don't think – have we ever had an election where the candidate whose uh, base is more excited ended up losing? Usually the, the, isn't that sort of a, a trend that, you know, the more excited the base, you tend to win that election? I think that's right. And, and you know, and the driver really is the national mood. I mean, I think um, – I think in 2014, actually, Democrats in North Carolina were pretty fired up. But nationally, we were running against a, 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 a tide. And, uh, you know, the, for, 2014 was a huge Republican wave nationally. In North Carolina, not so much. I mean, uh, we, we did lose Kay Hagan, but it was by, I think, a point and a half. It was a hairline. It was a hairline win. Yeah, and we even picked up a we picked up a, a state house seat. So, you know, it was not. Uh, it, we did far better than the rest of the country because of our motivated Democratic election electorate. Well, I, I I don't I don't I don't want to pick at you, uh, but I, I I just got to tell you, just you know, when I do see the Democratic Party rolling out a better deal. It does exactly just send chills down my spine. I'm just this is <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, well, um you know, I think look, they're gonna try a lot of things. And I think there 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 are a lot of folks that are kind of uh they're they're throwing a lot of stuff at the wall to see what sticks. I, I don't know that you're gonna hear them talking about a better deal six months from now or not okay. you know it was kind of a i mean they, people are trying to figure out what works we right. we're we are in some uncharted territory here with with a, a guy like donald trump being in, well in the did, they, did they did i mean did they, you know you worked a lot of campaigns did the hair stand on your head uh, on your neck when you heard a better deal did, you know <laughs> uh, you know i i, I gotta tell you i'm i'm not a i'm not a slogan guy mm. you know i I've never thought that one slogan or the other is really going to drive anybody. You know, um, I really think, you know, a message really is, is, is what we need. And, and that really should reflect, you know, you know, why do we need Democrats and why do we need them right now? Mm-hmm. And, and I don't think it's something that you can say in a slogan, though. We need to be able to say it in less than two or three sentences, mm-hmm. you know, or, or – or, or be able to say it in two or three sentences. And, um, you know, I, I think it needs to, to kind of center on a few things. One is opportunity. Um, you know, I think that, that people right now are feeling very frustrated with their situation. I think young people are coming out of school with uh, debt the size of mortgages, and, and yet their, their jobs aren't paying enough to pay them off. I've got a 27-year-old daughter, and she talks about, She's got a good job. She talks about a lot of her friends who graduated. They're working two and three jobs that just to try to uh, keep their heads above water, and a lot of that's paying off the student debt. And so you've got that with young people. I think you've got uh, 
you know, middle, middle class people, look, we lost a ton of middle-aged, middle-class people lost a ton of their wealth in that, that recession. We're still in North Carolina, you know, we're, we're just now getting back to where uh, our weight, median incomes, where it was before the recession when you adjust for inflation. So nobody's feeling like they've gotten ahead yet. You know, even their, their wages are just getting through, and they still haven't recovered what they lost. So there's still a certain amount. I don't know if it's despair, but it's not optimism. And, uh, you know, I, I think we need to, Democrats need to, to, to reflect that, that feeling. And uh, I think people are cynical about solutions. You know, um, part of what they want is they want government, they want, they want their government to work. And they want people to look out for them. And they're not seeing a whole lot of that in, in government or business right now. Um, tell us, uh, for those for those who may be hearing you for the first time, which I doubt there's that many in North Carolina, but for those who, who might be hearing you for the first time, uh, not even North Carolina, just throughout the region, um, how um, could they find your website? Uh, I'm, my website is politics nc.com and uh, I try to post something every day. I try to be a little bit insightful. I, I, I will say this. I argue with myself fairly often and uh, sometimes I figure out after I've written something that, hey, maybe I'm wrong. But, uh, but at least I think about it. And I, I hope that uh, I hope people will read it and I hope they'll enjoy it. You know, I, I come from an unabashedly left of center perspective. So uh, I try to be respectful of, of other views too. Well, I, I think I mean I, I think that's part that's part of the uh, piece that's been missing in our discourse. I mean, it's it, you know that uh, just being who you are, just being honest about it. I mean, you said something today though, Thomas. I got to tell you that disqualified you from ever running for politics. You know, <laughs> you know what you said. You know what you said. Yeah, that's right. I asked you right. a question and you said I don't know. <laughs> I mean, well, ask me again. I'll have an answer. Yeah, but, but that's but that. But you know, my, my bias here. I, I think we need more of that. We we need more. I don't know than um, simplistic pablum for complicated answers for complicated questions. I, I agree with that. I, I mean, I, I think, and 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 I think part of what's got people cynical about politics is. We've got far too many politicians who are willing to offer simple solutions to very complex problems, and the reality is, is people are smarter than that, and and the politicians don't don't seem to get it. So it sounds it comes across as condescending, not not you know not actually offering anything tangible. Thomas Mills, Politics North Carolina. Sir, I'd like to thank you so much for joining us. And this will not be the last time we have you on the Public Reality. Well, I sure do appreciate you uh, inviting me, and I look forward to coming back. And I hope you have a great day, Byron. That was Thomas Mills. Stay tuned for my closing remarks. But before that, I've asked the comedy team of Abbott and Costello to provide us with an example as to how challenging it has become to talk with those who see things differently. Here is their famous routine, Who's On First? You're going to be the manager of the retired actors baseball team? Yes. I would like to join the retired actors baseball team. Oh, you would? And I would like to know some of the guys' names on the team, so if I want to play with them, I'll know them. I'll meet them on the street or in the home here. I can say hello to them. 
Oh, sure. But you know they give baseball players nowadays very peculiar names. Yeah, a lot of funny names. You know, like uh, Sticky Fields. Sticky Fields. Uh, Goofy Dan. Booby Bobber. Booby Bobber. <laughs> well, let's see. Now, we have on our team, we have who's on first, what's on second, I don't know who's on third. That's what I want to find and out, the guy's name. And that, uh -huh. That's what I want to find out, the guy's name. I'm telling you, who's on first, what's on second, I don't know who's on third. Now, Abby, you now, want to be the manager of the baseball team? Yes. You know the guy's names? Well, I should. Well, you tell me the guy's names on the baseball I team. I say, who's on first, what's on second, I don't know who's on third. You ain't saying nothing to me yet. Go ahead and tell me. <laughs> I'm telling him. You said nothing yet. Go ahead and tell me. Who's on first? What's on second? I don't know. Is on third. You know the guy's I'll... name's on the baseball team. Yes. Well, go ahead. Who's on first? Yes. I mean the guy's name. Who? The guy playing first. Who? The guy playing first base. Who? The guy on first base. <laughs> who is on first? Why are you asking me? Fire him out. Wait a minute. I'm, not... I'm asking you who's on first. That's his name. Well, go ahead and tell me. Who? The guy on first. That's it. <laughs> That's his name. You said that. I ain't asking nothing. You did. You know the guy's name on first base? Sure. Well, tell me the guy's name on first base. Who? <laughs> the guy playing first base. Who is on first, Lou? What are you asking me for? I'm asking you a simple question. Who's on first? Yes. Well, go ahead and tell me. That's it. That's who? <laughs> I'm asking you, what's the guy's name on first base? Oh, no, what's on second? I'm not asking you who's on second. Who's on first? One base at a time. Don't mix up my... I'm story. not mixing up anybody. Now, what's the guy's name on first base? Now, what is on second? I'm not asking you who's on second. Who is on first? I don't know. He's on first. We're not talking. You mentioned his name. I mentioned his name. Yes. I don't know anybody's name on the team. I uh, how could I mention a guy's name? You did. You just mentioned it. All right. What's the guy's name on third base? No. What's on second? Who's on second? Who's on first? I don't know. He's on first. <laughs> I didn't even mention a guy's name on third base. Yes, you did. All right. Then who's playing third base? No. Who's on first? I'm not asking you what's on first. What's on second? Who's on second? Who's on first? I don't know. He's third base. <laughs> Team. You do, you mention their names. I do? Sure. You got an outfield? Well, naturally. Tell the fielder's name. Why? <laughs> I, I, I just thought I'd ask you. I just thought I'd ask you. Well, I just thought I'd tell you. Well, go ahead. Tell me. Tell you what? Tell the fielder's name. Why? Because I want to know! Because! Oh, he's center field. You know these players as well. Who's in center field? No, who's on first? What's on first? What's on second? I don't know. Third base. <laughs> Do you know the guy's name's on the team? Look, Louis, uh, you don't seem to understand. See, I have a first baseman. You, I know you got a first. Gets his I ask you, what's what's the first? I ask you, what's the first baseman's name? No, what's the second baseman's? Name? I, I'm going to start asking you. So I ask you, what's the first baseman's name? What's the second baseman's? I don't even get past the first. All right. Who's on second? Who's on first? What base do you want to talk about? You can talk about anyone you want to talk about. All right, now who's on first? Right. Okay. No. I'm getting no, no, no. All right, you got a first base. Yes. When you pay off the first base from every month, who gets the money? Every dollar of it. <laughs> every dollar of it. Who gets it? He does. <laughs> Sometimes his wife comes down and collects it. Whose wife? Yes. <laughs> Why not, Lou? He's earned it. Who did? Yes. <laughs> Look, will you pay off the first base every month? You get a receipt from the guy? Sure. How does he sign his name? Oh. The guy you give the money to. Oh. The guy you give the money to. <laughs> well, that's how he signs it. That's Lou. how who signs it? Yes. Who's right there? That's it. Who? <laughs> Look, you go to first base. Yes. And you say to him, here's your money, sign the receipt. How does he sign his name? Who? The guy you give the money to. That's how he signs it. That's how who signs it? Yes. Sure. <laughs> you gotta get a receipt from the guy. Get one, How does the guy on first base sign?
in his name? Who? The guy at first. Uh, I'm asking. When you give the guy the money, what's the guy's name that you give the money to? Now, wait a minute. Now, what signs his own? Who signs his own? No, who signs his? <laughs> I mean, what's the guy's name on first you give what the money? What is on second? I'm not asking you who's on second. Who's on first? I don't know. Third base. <laughs> for my closing remarks. My immediate reaction is to applaud President Donald Trump's decision to release the final set of files on the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. For more than 50 years, the U.S. government has played the role of Colonel Nathan Jessup from the movie A Few Good Men, suggesting to the American people, you can't handle the truth. Perhaps that's true, but America has become much more cynical since November 22, 1963. I largely agree with the conclusions from the Warren Commission 
that Lee Harvey Oswald was indeed the lone shooter. I further believe, arguably, the greatest crime in 20th century America was matched only by the worst possible criminal investigation contributing significantly to the cottage industry of conspiracy theorists. As the president's body lay in Parkland Hospital, the federal government and local municipalities engaged in a near brawl over who should conduct the autopsy. This begins the underpinnings of open distrust of government that would not only symbolize the remainder of the decade, but remains present today. Two days after the assassination, the first nationally televised murder occurred when Jack Ruby shot Oswald. Moreover, it wasn't until a young reporter named Geraldo Rivera in 1975 debuted the gruesome assassination footage taken by Abraham Zapruder. As unanswered questions persist, little wonder why conspiracy theories continue to have a shelf life. Though no evidence has been presented to date that conclusively debunks the Warren Commission's findings, distrust remains. It remains primarily because the notion of Oswald acting alone does not fit the magnitude of the crime. How can a nobody, as in Oswald, kill a somebody, as in President Kennedy? Historian William Manchester, writing in the New York Times several years ago, outlined the fundamental problem accepting Oswald as the lone assassin. Quote, To employ what may seem an odd metaphor, there is an aesthetic principle here. If you put six million dead Jews on one side of the scale, and on the other side you put the Nazi regime, the greatest gang of criminals ever to seize control of a modern government, you have a rough balance. Greatest crime, greatest criminals. But if you put the murdered President of the United States on one side of the scale and the wretched waif Oswald on the other, it doesn't balance. You want to add something weightier to Oswald. It would invest the president's death with meaning, endowing him with martyrdom. He would have died for something. A conspiracy would, of course, do the job nicely. Manchester's observation explains why theories ranging from the Soviet Union to Cuba to the mafia continue to spread. There was even one conspiracy theory that held there was a man hiding in the sewer drain that fired the fatal shot as the motorcade passed by. The only plausible conspiracy theory would include the United States government. The president's motorcade route in Dallas was made public in the Dallas Morning News one day prior. Given where the assassination occurred, there was only one entity that had prior knowledge of the motorcade route. Unlike Leon Chalgosh, who walked up to President William McKinley in 1901, most JFK conspiracy theories portray some type of sophisticated planning. Such planning was unlikely to be conducted with only 24 hours' notice. Should one accept U.S. involvement, it too is implausible given U.S. history and covert operations. Does Oswald make it down from the sixth floor of the Texas School Book Depository Building, back to his home several miles away, by the way, he didn't have a car, leave again to shoot Officer J.D. Tippett, and hide in a movie theater before he's arrested 
without being gunned down himself? But we will soon find out if the final dump of information reveals what otherwise has been the best-kept secret in U.S. history, if you believe in conspiracy theories or whether it will be much ado about nothing. Regardless of the outcome, we will most likely be regaled with additional books, documentaries, maybe even a full-length movie to counter Oliver Stone's controversy of JFK released in 1991. The best or worst-case scenario would be the latest information about the Kennedy assassination might prove embarrassing to the federal government. Either way, Colonel Jessup's observation is the correct one. We can't handle the truth, which is but another stumbling block toward that more perfect union. The Public Morality welcomes your comments. You can contact me at byron at publicmorality.org. That's byron, B-Y-R-O-N, at publicmorality.org. Our archive broadcasts are located at our website, which is publicmorality.com. And be sure to subscribe to our podcast, which can be found on iTunes. You can also follow me on Twitter as well as Facebook. The Public Rally is produced at WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University. For all of us at the Public Rally, I'm Byron Williams. Uh-huh.